So I remember a time growing up when we had very few distractions, okay? So if you're old as I am, you'll remember that the TV channel only had four or five channels, okay? Can you imagine that? That if you're flipping the channels like I do, you're like, one, two, three, four, five, you've done. You're, you're all done. Uh, there was very little to do outside of outside stuff and work, whether it's homework or work work. My parents owned stores their whole lives, and so guess who was their main employee, employees? Unpaid, by the way, me, yeah, and my, my sister. Um, so it was always home chores, work work, school work, and you, you, we had time to play. That was the fun part, because we didn't have all these other distractions. We had time to play. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have all that other stuff. But I grew up working all the time. Um, I would run a cashier, you know, exchange money at like age 10. Okay, it's kind of weird, but that's, I look thinking back and I'm like, what was I doing exchanging money at age 10? Um, I got jobs outside of my work at like 16. It was, I think to myself, like uh, as having, having children myself and having a daughter who is 16 now, uh, and thinking that she wants to work. And like, well, that's great. But my experience of work actually was very different from what her experience of life many times is. We ask her to put away the dishes, and sorry, she's here, by the way, uh, and she grumbles, because that's what all teenagers do, right? But I remember having to do so much stuff. At church, my father was a choir director, so we were there really early. I would help him set up and do stuff, and he would stay really late. And guess what we were doing? Sometimes playing, but sometimes work. And growing up, I was thinking to myself, uh, later on, I became a pastor whose job is to serve people. I'm supposed to be a servant. I look back and I go, wow, God did a really good job of forcing me to learn what service is like. Because you serve in these kinds of circumstances, uh, not because you want to, but because you're asked to. And you do it not for recompense. In fact, these days, if, you know, like teens or even younger kids, if they do, they get allowance. We never got allowance. Okay. <gasps> never got allowance. I would work 12-hour days with them at the store. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, they would just say, you're coming with me. It's like, oh, right? Uh, they're paying for my food and for other stuff, and so I guess that's my allowance. Um, it, was a, it was a very strange system that I, did, I never even questioned. Uh, my friends, they would get an A in their class, and they would get a prize. They would get an incentive. Me, A plus nothing, right? And so I was always like, you work not because you're getting something in return. You work because you're just supposed to. My father, she, he would, he would involunteer me to go help people move in the church. They'd be like, oh, this person's moving. You show up on this day, and you have to work all day long. They didn't pay you. They may, maybe give you lunch. That was, that was it, right? And so that's, not, that's, that's the world I grew up in. Uh, but I'm finding that these days, nobody does that. Any kind of service, especially in New York, okay? If they park your car, you know, they're like, they're expecting a little slip of a couple bills, uh, any little thing is service-oriented. Everybody is expecting that if they're doing something for you, there is something expected in return. Um, and that's the way that we live. We live kind of assessing our, even our relationships with what do we get back in return? What is, what is this, I can serve you, but there's got to be another catch, right? So when you donate something, do I get a T-shirt, right? Uh, a lot of people, when they donate uh, time, Right? They want recognition. Or they want to feel as though, you know, they want something. So a lot of people say, it was so worth it. I spent an afternoon and I helped these poor people. I feel so good. That was their recompense. Very few people actually, when they come to work or to serve, 
to help somebody out or to serve God, do with this recognition that I'm doing just because I'm so thankful. I know who I am. I know what I've received. I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I can do this with all of my heart without any expectation of a consumer response, even a thank you. But as I look at what service looks like in the scriptures, when I look at the, the clearest expression of servanthood, that's in Christ. I see something very different. And in fact, as we're looking at this passage today, I'm hoping that it'll stretch us a little into knowing what, what does service look like as we're serving God and serving others. Um, and it's not what I always assumed or even described it to be. Well, when we go to the scriptures, I always try to give some kind of context and background because it's very helpful to understand. We don't have to go into the, 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 all the little you know, rabbit trails, but these verses that are significant, um, they, they're embedded in sections, which gives us a better idea of what maybe it might mean as we look at the section. The section here in 1 Peter chapter 4 is verse 7 through 11, and we're going to cover that just really quick. It starts off with... Our context, it has nothing to do with, as we would think, has nothing to do with serving, because okay, we're talking about serving today, by the way. What does it look like to serve? How, how should we serve? And so on and so forth. How can we? But uh, it actually starts off by saying, the end of all things is near. That's really ominous, right? If that was the only verse that I preached today, it would be a very different sermon. The end of all things is near. It's like chicken little, sky is falling. Uh, why do I start here? Because it actually gives us some kind of context. It's actually saying there's a recognition both in Peter's day, right, as well as in ours, that the setting in which we serve is not a setting where all life is kind of happening and it's transactional and we live and we die and, and however the quality of our lives that we lived is what matters. In fact, he starts off by saying this actually, in this section, it's, it clarifies the context in which all of our life and our serving happens. It's in the time when everything matters. Okay? So Pastor Richard actually mentioned it in, kind of the, in the sermon context, uh, the, the worship context. He said, we're living in this already but not yet age. Christ has already come. He started putting things into motion. God is moving. History is going somewhere. And it's going to be finished when he comes back again. We live in the in-between time when everything matters. In other sections of the scriptures, we see Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the time has been contracted. It's been shortened. We know Christ is coming back. We don't know when, but there's a certain time frame. And in that time frame, everything matters. It's not just languishing and we're just going loop-de-loop-de-loop and nothing counts. Everything counts. So we're supposed to be alert and of sober mind so we can pray. One of the ways that I describe maybe is how we understand this and how it sets up our servanthood and our life um, is actually a demarcated time when everything is heightened and it matters because we know the end is coming. If you're a football fan, right, the season has just begun, there's this thing called a two-minute warning. Okay? You get a little free timeout, and after that, you know you got two minutes. The game is on the line. Every second counts. Every little play is under scrutiny, and in fact, if somebody actually doesn't go out of bounds, you could lose the game because you're managing the clock. If you're an NFL person, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not, just please nod your head and basically say, I understand. The two-minute warning means it's almost done. Every play counts. Every team member has to do their job. Every block has to be done right on both sides. That's what he's saying. The end is near. That our lives matter. 
who we are and what we do, how we live in our families, in our church life, in our world, in the world, it all counts. It's all being not just scrutinized, but it's going to matter in the end. And it makes sense. It makes sense of, in some ways, uh, how we are called to live. Now, this was 2,000 plus years ago, so you're like, oh man, okay, near, it's been 2,000 years, so that doesn't mean another 2,000 years, we don't know when. But actually, uh, not metaphorically, but personally, we don't know what our days are going to look like. We don't know, in fact, uh, if tomorrow is not even a given for us or our family members. We live maybe in a little bubble thinking that everything's going to be the same next day and the next day, and you can just kind of accumulate uh, happiness and wealth and experience and so on and so forth. That's not the case. Um, instead, we live in a context, even in, this, in a safe place like us, where we're not in control of our lives. And we do know what the final end is going to look like. And so how we live, how we spend our time, how we spend our hearts, it matters. It matters to God, and it matters to us. And so he starts off by saying, above all, how do we, how do we live in this time when we're supposed to be alert and praying because the end is all near? What is the strategy to live? It's to love deeply. To love others deeply. Isn't that interesting? You would have thought, the end is all near, okay? Buy a bunch of stuff for the zombie apocalypse. Buy some guns, right? <laughs> learn learn how, to, how, to, how to do some bushcraft and get ready because the end is all near. If life is about you and about self and self-preservation, making the most out of this world only, that's what you're going to do. But if the end is all near and a new life is coming, the Lord is coming, actually, then what is the strategy for a well-lived, strategic life that counts? Love each other deeply. It's not this moralistic, soft, hey, be kind, be nice, let's be a nice, gentle people. No, no, it's get passionate, get strategic, do it in a costly way where it's deep. Learn to love other people deeply. That's going to be the most productive thing you can do in this time, in our lives. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love is the thing that actually can take a broken person's heart and a broken life and remend. It can be the very uh, expression of God's activity and healing process in this life. It's an amazing thing to be able to love deeply because actually it's described here, it actually covers over each other's faults and gives them a chance to grow into life. It is the call to love deeply. We know this. We reminded this, you boil down the law, love God, love others. Boil down our calling in life. Whatever you do, whether it's in a profession, in terms of a doctor, lawyer, whatever it may be, this is what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. Love others and love God. Love deeply. Well, he's going to actually kind of unpack a little of how we can love deeply. And one of the next things he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. What does that mean? Hospitality is actually, you invite somebody to your house, you cook for them, you bring out your best stuff, you're kind to them, you warm them, you welcome them, you give them a sense of wholeness, that you're a person, you're a person of value, not only to you, but to your community. It's actually a, such a great gift. We've got people in our community that are incredible at hospitality. They just make you feel so good. They invite you to their homes, uh, and so on and so forth. But it, this is what, this is interesting. Watch what he says. Offer hospitality to one another, Without grumbling. By the way, hospitality is not simply to your close friends, to the people that you like. Hospitality, by definition, is to a stranger, somebody you don't know very well. Maybe into somebody who is in need, 
but you don't really like that much. That's actually what's being described as someone who is offering hospitality. When you do it right, when you do it deeply, guess what? You're going to be really tempted to grumble because you're pouring out your best stuff. You're giving your energy and thoughtfulness, and you're doing this to people who might not actually recompense. They're going to be like, oh, that dinner was awesome. Okay? I like to cook steak for my guests, right? And I go out of my way. I actually do the whole sous vide stuff. I, I like put it in a, in a vacuum sealed with herbs and with salt and pepper, and I leave it in a water bath for like four hours so it all gets really soft. And then I sear it, right? And I have it all ready. Okay? So we go out of our way. We don't, we don't give McDonald's when we go with the hospitality, right? But yes, after a while, this is, this is my bad. Um, if the person eating the steak is like, this is the best steak I ever had, I start to grumble. <laughs> do you know how long I spent <laughs> and, you know, perfecting this craft? And it might not even be that good. But if you don't tell me how good it is, I grumble. And actually tells you exactly where you are in your servanthood, in fact. Because when you start to do things to love deeply, you find out what kind of servant you are. You find out what your assumptions about what serving is. If you've done this five times or so for somebody, and they come to your house expecting steak, and they don't really even appreciate you, or they are never would ever invite you to their house, or never would actually even love somebody else well. There's nothing happened, nothing mattered. Guess what? You begin to grumble. Or if you're doing this so often that you're exhausted, you begin to grumble. I find it interesting when it says, offer hospitality to the point, this is how I'm translating it, to the point where you've loved deeply, and now you're starting to grumble. This is at the point by which you really learn how to serve. If you've ever done hospitality and, you've, and you've, you've got like, oh, I'm so tired, I'm not going to do this ever again, right at the point where you're about to learn what hospitality means, what servant look, looks like, right as you're about to go deeper into love, something stopped you. It's the definition of what service is, definition of what love is. I expected something in return, and I didn't get it. You're going to find that this is the kind of way that we're being prompted actually, to live in this age, to love deeply, to offer this kind of service to a stranger who might not even appreciate, might not even understand, or be able to give back. Because this is what it means to be like Christ. He goes on further, and in the context of the church as well as in the world, he says, each of you, every single one, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. That word gift is, can be described as just Simple as that. You know, anybody received a gift before for your birthday or so on and so forth? Something valuable, something meaningful, something useful that has now been transferred into your possession. You have the right to use it however you feel. You can use it for your own pleasures, your own satisfaction, your own development, or you could use it to actually benefit others. And actually, that's what a spiritual gift is. Something that is of God, an ability, a heart, Something that reflects him that he has entrusted to you. Something that is so like him in his power and his love that now he said, it's yours. Do with it as you want. Now he's saying, but if you know who the giver is, if you know why it was given, with what mandate, you would do this. You would serve others in the church and in the world. That's actually the concept of serving. You work, you spend, you care, you do all these thoughtful and sometimes exhausting things to, to, to bless other people, to help other people, develop them. Why? Because you realize 
the very ability to do so, the resources, the, your very personal makeup and your spiritual giftedness was given for that very reason. This is what it means to serve. This is how we're called to serve. At that depth, at that level, as well as for that reason. Um, let me back up a bit. So when I would have my daughters, when I would have them working with me, whether it's out in the yard or uh, sometimes we would plan a vacation together, I would say, this is, you know, they'd be like, do I have to? I was like, yes. Okay, you're going to learn something here. And I learned it from my, my dad. My dad would make me work with the cars, you know, change the brakes, do oil change. I, he, he gave me a tool set and said, replace this water pump. It's like, what? You know, it took me all day long, right? And, and, and afterwards, I'm like, wow, what a benefit that is. If I didn't have that, you know, these days, if I have car problems alone, I'd be like, okay, you know, call. You know, I, I have some skills. And I'm like, so in my head, I'm like, I'm going to help educate my, my daughters. Like, you're going to appreciate this. This is good for you. You're, this is good for your life. And I'm giving them all this instruction. I realize, as a father, I wasn't being a very good pastor to my children. I was telling them, work and develop skills so that it'd be good for you. I bought in, in my own parenting, this idea that all of this life is for your own satisfaction. And you're in this consumer world where every part of your relationships are transactional. Serving this way, where you're actually you're doing it to the point of grumbling but not grumbling, just because, and maybe we'll find out, because you're being a faithful steward, it changes the way you serve. It changes, if you're doing it this way, it changes the way you're approaching even serving others. What we find out, it says, why should you serve others with the gifts that you've received? Because you're a faithful steward. Do you want to be faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms? What does it mean to be a steward? Well, anybody who's watched LOTR, we have one version of that. Uh, there's this one guy who was not the king, but was given all the king's responsibilities and authority hold in place till the king comes. He is entrusted to lead and use that for the good of others, not so that he can make his own reign, but until somebody else comes. The real king comes, and then he can say, I've done all this with your money, with your people, with your resources for your good. That's what it means to be a faithful steward. It's kind of like this. Anybody grow up without a car and, um, uh, and, and you just take buses? And, I mean, in New York, everybody takes buses right, and, and trains. But uh, I grew up without a car, and I would always have to mooch off of people's rides. Dude, can you give me a ride, please? And I felt really bad. Sometimes I had to walk. You know, back in, back in where I'm coming from, walking is, is, is really uh, is ignoble. You're like this. <laughs> in New York, everybody's walking, but over there, they're not, they're not walking, right? Uh, especially the teenagers, because they all have cars. Their dad gave them cars, right? Can you imagine if uh, somebody saw you and they just said, you know what, I'm going to give you a Mercedes G-Wagon, okay? You're, if you're a teenager, okay, and you're about to get your license, right? And, and somebody just gives you a Mercedes G-Wagon. It's like, oh! Okay, I've been told that's a pretty nice car. I don't know. Uh, it's like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I didn't get this little, little beater. I got this nice car. But then they said, I'm giving this to you so that you can give people rides. How would you feel? Oh! Anybody who asks you for a ride, the reason why you have this is so that you can give it to people. How would you feel? If you're operating from a transactional consumer perspective, you'd be like, I don't want it. You're just giving me work 
<laughs> right? I've just become an all full-time Uber driver for nothing, for nothing. But in fact, if you realize the reason why the one who gave it to you is because that person's so generous, so thoughtful. He wants to shape you into a kind of person who's not so selfish that you would take everything for you, but you'd be willing to give your best for somebody else. That's how we understand spiritual gifts. Somebody who is so thoughtful and loving gifted you with abilities, with personalities, with specific ways of seeing things and doing things and relating that is of him, that reflects him. It's valuable. It's meaningful. And it was so that you could be like him and caring for others. Well, other people have described it that way, in, in that kind of similar way. In fact, Marvel and Spider-Man, the story basically, put it very simply, with great power comes great responsibility. You've heard this before? Okay. Spider-Man ripped it off of First Peter. Right? Think about it. <laughs> You've been given this so that you can serve others. To be a faithful steward, God's gift given to you to be used well for his purposes, to honor him. That's how we're supposed to live this life, okay? If you think about it, that's what it means to actually love God and love others. That's what it means to serve. This is the most beautiful thing. It's like, I always love win-wins, two, two birds with one stone, efficiency, right? We're called to love God and love others. When you serve others with the gifting, with the resources, the education, abilities that you have, okay, just throwing your heart in, in the ring, guess what? You love God and love others at the very same time. You're serving others, but you're being a faithful steward. Okay? You're loving God and loving others at the same time. It's like the best thing you can do. You can't have to split the two. Okay, was well, I'm loving others, I'm actually just loving others, and then I have to spend more time loving God. By the fact that if you are serving others, not for yourself, not to feel good, not so that they can thank you or you can get something in return, but just because you know that ability to serve them is actually from God and you're doing his will and you want to honor him, you've done two things at once. I think serving from this attitude, from this mindset, is one of the most powerful ways to grow to be like Christ. And if we don't know how to do this, we're doing all this loving God stuff, and we're not loving others. We're doing all this loving other stuff, but we're not doing it because we're loving God. And in fact, we're not growing to be like Christ. Our lives are becoming empty. We're not growing close to Christ. We'll love others to the point where we start to grumble and say, that's enough. That's enough, man. Okay? We'll start loving God until it feels like we're not getting enough back. God, you're not giving me back what I expect. I'm giving you all this time and energy and you're not answering my prayer. That's enough. But when you love God and love others this way, you're stretched to a point where, guess what? You encounter God. You understand him. And God uses you powerfully. With great power comes great responsibility. It means if you've been given something of God's, you are called to account to it. And you get to actually, as you do it, grow into servanthood. When the world thinks about great power, they don't think about great responsibility, except for Spider-Man, by the way. In fact, Jesus was mentioning, as his disciples thought of a different way. As Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, in multiple periods of time, not simply just the, the, the moment that we're going to describe in Luke 7, but repeatedly, the disciples are jockeying for position. They want to be in the left hand or right hand of Jesus so that they can have power. 
And Jesus says stuff like, you've heard it and you've seen it. The Gentiles lord it over another with authority, but it's not supposed to be with you. The greatest among you is going to be the least. Right? It says, another setting in the book of Mark, it says, even the Son of Man, and the Son of Man language comes from the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is given all authority and power. The Ancient of Days is making the Son of Man the most powerful being in the universe. The book of Daniel. It says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This actually scene is coming from the book of Luke, where Jesus is actually explaining to them, you got it all wrong. Life is about serving. Not to get something back. Not to lord it over somebody else. But actually, it's about serving, he says. And he gives them a little description of, when you have a table and there's a seat of honor, who's the greatest? The one who sits at the seat of honor. At the Lord's table, who's the greatest? Jesus, he's sitting right there. And then he has to say, but wait a minute. I am among you as one who serves. He had just washed their feet. And if you know anything about foot washing in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the Greek times, guess what? Uh, at Jesus' times, foot washing is the most disgusting thing that could ever be done. It's not simply because the roads were nasty, and I've been walked in India where the, you don't know what it's mud or cow dung, and it's usually both, right? Uh, it's not just because it's disgusting. It's this cultural thing, that the foot is a dirty, unclean thing. Servants, by custom, could not be expected, could not be asked, you must wash my feet if you're a master. Okay. It's so dirty, you can't demand your servant to do it. Only a friend who loves you that much, who has that much love and loyalty, will be willing to, to deal with that indignity to wash feet. This is what Jesus does. He says, Peter, come here. I'm going to wash your feet. Peter's like, heck no. Okay, you know, And he's a fisherman, so he probably used a four-letter word there. It's uh, like, no way. Uh, because he knows. Number one, if Jesus does this for him, and Jesus is his rabbi, now Peter has to do this. This has to be his lifestyle. No way, Jesus. I'm going to start to grumble. No way. But Jesus says, you don't do this, and you're not fully clean. You're not, you're not quite there. Jesus actually doesn't do it just for Peter. He does it for all 12, 24 feet. Okay? I can't imagine, actually, something as this disgusting. Okay, cleaning sewers is pretty bad, but that's, it's pretty bad. This is disgusting. So I'll, I use a, 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 a small illustration from my life. I'm a dog owner, and so I have a dog that's about almost 70 pounds now. And when she was a pup, she pooed this much. Guess how much she poos now? <laughs> like, I grab it, I feel it, the heat and the squishiness, <laughs> through the plastic bag. And, I put, and sometimes it's too much, and I can't quite get it in the bag, so I have to, like, and sometimes I get it on my fingers, and oh. And, that's, and her, her, she's a healthy dog, so her poop is kind of hard, and that's not bad. Um, and then I wrap it up, and it stinks, and I put it, in, I put it in a little thing, and I close it off like, oh, okay. I do that because why? I love my dog, right? And I don't want a yard full of dog poop and just trailing in the house. But if somebody, again, by the way, that's not bad. If it's diarrhea, it's, oh, my gosh. It's a whole different story. It's nasty, and it's rained a little. It's like, you've got to get a shovel. I mean, you just can't, it's just, you just can't get there. And actually, I found out dog poop is considered a biohazard. Did you know that? It's actually biohazard because it has all kinds of stuff that, like, like worms and so on and so forth. So this is nasty stuff. I would not get a job as somebody whose primary role is to go ahead and clean other dogs' diarrhea poop. Okay? Just, that's an ignoble job. What do you do? I'm a diarrhea dog poop picker-upper. That's, you know, that's actually what he's doing multiplied by a million. Right? No, nobody had this job. Okay, it's just that nasty. 
It's a, a metaphor, but he did it for real, but it's a metaphor. This is what servant life looks like. If you're going to grow as a Christ follower, you can't stop when you start to grumble. You can't stop when culture says, oh, man, nobody could ever expect that of you, right? You can't just serve until you feel good and that's enough. We're called to serve like Jesus. We're called to serve like Jesus for the very reasons he served. He knew who he was, loved of his Father, given this incredible power and responsibility, and then spending it, even to his detriment. This is the kind of culture of servant that the world does not know, servanthood that the world does not know, that we get to live out. When we do this, guess what? Loving deeply, offering hospitality, even to the point where I would be like, man, you know, who does this? It's surprising others. Guess what? This is what it looks like to be Christ's church in this day and age even. We want us, we want us to grow in this kind of servanthood. It's great if you haven't served and you say, just get your feet in, just to start something. But this is the goal. You have to know what the goal is or else we'll fall short. A couple more verses and we're done uh, with a, with a little, little um, encouragements along the way. It says, if anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do with the very strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. This is actually a very simple way of describing for Peter the two different kind of kinds of serving. Something with your words. Okay, so if you see in the spiritual gifts, you see like prophecy, you see all kinds of tongues and encouragements and so on and so forth. Something you can do through words and speaking, preaching and so on and so forth, right? Uh, others is something you do with your life and through your hands and through your mind. Um, so this is just a, kind of like a, a holistic way of saying all the kinds of ways you serve. But it's the same thing. You're doing it with this recognition that you're representing God. God's in it. It matters. And you're doing it realizing that Guess what? It's not your energy. It's not your resources alone. It's not just you serving. God will provide the strength that you need. Think about this. Why would he say that? Why would he say offer hospitality to the point of grumbling, but don't grumble? Serve to the point of realizing that your strength is not enough, but that God's strength will supply you. That's what a real servant looks like. And Anybody who's served, you serve and you love to a point where you're, you're done. Oh, no mas. Right? Any husband, any, any spouse, you've, you've hit that point many times. Any parent, this cute little kid, and you're wiping their diapers. Okay, first it smells really nice, and then it gets really nasty, right? And you're, they're, they're hating you. They're like, I hate you. And you're like, what is this for? At first it's like, oh, this beautiful baby. You're like smelling his breath and let, her breath. And the next thing you know, the kid's like throwing stuff. I hate you, terrible twos. You haven't learned to love deeply until you've gone through that, right? Until you've served through that. But the great part is, if you're serving the way Christ serves and the way that we're called to serve, you're not doing it for yourself. You know, you're not shaking your face saying, don't you know how much I love you, right? Um, Or threatening them, you know, let's wait and see what your child looks like, (laughs) right? In fact, instead... You're loving way beyond that. You're doing it with and for God. That's the real kind of servanthood that actually makes a huge difference uh, in this day in life as well, and in your children's lives. Serving, both the speaking and the doing versions, all have to do with God. 
Speak as if you're very you're, you're God's ambassador, God's mouthpiece. His very heart is coming through you. Okay? Serve as if you're doing to the fullest point where you couldn't have finished that task unless God supplied you and you're depending on him. You're, you're needing him to do it because you're doing it for him. And the whole time, it's not for your satisfaction, it's for God's glory. This kind of serving is transforming. You'll get to know Christ. You'll know how he feels. And actually, God will use that kind of serving so potently. Let me go back real quick before I use this. Well, why don't we serve like this? Why don't we serve like this? I think part of it is we kind of feel like, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I'm not great. Great power has great responsibility. I don't have great power. I'm not really gifted. I really don't know how to talk really well. I really don't know how to do things. Not like that person, right? That's, that's kind of like me. In fact, that's how I grumble all the time. God, why would you make me be a public speaker if you have any idea how, how, how difficult this has been and is for me? Like, oh, why would you ask me to do things that I just, leadership is not my skill. My, my sister's an incredible leader. I'm not a great leader. God, why would you ask me to do these kinds of things? And I was grumbling for quite a while. I still do, all the time. But then this quote actually reminds me, when you're serving the way God wants you to serve, you don't serve with what you think on your terms you can do or you should do. You serve on his terms, what he would ask you to do. When, that's why I like the way that God trained me to serve. I didn't think I could do these things or wanted to do them. It's like, I got asked. It's like, okay. Okay? But, it, but if God asks, you do. And as you do, you run out of patience. You run out of, of ability, of resources. And then God begins to supply. This is a great quote. God doesn't call the equipped. He doesn't wait until you have everything you need to do his work. Okay? Like, I'm ready. Now I can do some damage for the kingdom. No, it doesn't happen that way. If you wait to serve that way, you never serve. You never serve God because it was on your terms. But if you feel this prompting or you're like, oh, I should be serving. This little, oh, I, sh- I should be doing something. I-, I have more to give, right? Um, or pastor's telling me, the Bible tells me I have more to give, right? I've been given a gift now. I have to be a faithful steward. But you don't feel equipped. Great, join the rest of us. That's exactly what it's supposed to feel like. You're not equipped. People are not going to listen to me. <clears throat> Moses, right? Right? I'm not, I'm not having enough courage, Timothy. Right? You're, not, you're not there. That's fine. That's, that's great. That's exactly where you're supposed to be. Because he will equip those who are called. He will do the very thing that, he will supply the very thing that you need along the way as you're stretched. But if you don't serve that way, and you're stuck serving at your terms, you never experience this. You stay stunted as a disciple, as a Christ follower. I'm going to move faster here. But that's not the case. The church and every single one in the church has been gifted. The Spirit has, has, has given out gifts, all kinds. The very way God made you, you are a gift. Do you realize that? Very few people think that. Except the really, really obnoxious, arrogant ones. I am a gift to the world. Most of us are like, I don't got much gifts. I'm not, I don't have much. I'm not that great. I'm like that all day, all the time. Because I see all these great people, great pastors, great, incredible speakers, and so on and so forth, and I think to myself, oh, 
I'm like mediocre in about 10 things. Okay? I'm, and I told myself, the last thing I wanted to be was a jack of all trades. I wanted to be, I wanted to be great in one thing. And I'm like, I'm sucking. I'm mediocre in 10 things. It's just really bad. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like this Swiss army knife, right? I have a lot of different things that I don't know if it's useful. But actually, uh, I realize, and we've, we've had some Swiss army knives actually even in our LT. Uh, that's a great gift. Because you can fill in lots of gaps. We have a gap filler. Okay, that's, his, that's his name. I'm the gap filler. That's what he goes around saying. Uh, you'll know him because he picks things up and puts things down. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know what to do, but I'll serve. What an amazing gift. You don't think you have one gift? Guess what? You've got ten. Right? And you just use them. Your gift might be that you're ten in one package. Okay? We have a lot of excuses to think, I'm useless. I don't have that great. I don't have great power, so I must not have great responsibility. No. Every single one of us has been gifted beautifully. Okay? If you're saying you're a child of God, you have no gifts, you're saying your father sucks. <laughs> Genetically, your father has nothing. He's a loser. Is that what you're saying? But if you're saying, wait a minute, my God is the most powerful, the most thoughtful, most creative, most compassionate person in the world, some of that came to you. Right? That's by definition. And maybe you haven't found your gift yet. Okay? And you might just think, I'm just this nondescript. I'm not, I'm not value. I'm not that great. I'm not like that person who can play music so well, or I can, that person's that athletic, or that person who knows how to make money. Right? I'm, not, I'm not that uh, good at that kind of ways. Do you realize how important you are and how much potential you have? Well, as a biologist, I took biology when I was in college, um, I realized that Bone cells are really wonderful. If your, your bones go wrong, you're in trouble. Your muscles go wrong, you go wrong. your heart goes wrong, you're in, in trouble. Any, any part of your body goes wrong, you're in trouble. Okay? Um, but there's this one cell that's amazing. It's called stem cell. Okay? It's this thing that's not fully differentiated yet. It has incredible potential. This can become a bone cell. It can become a heart muscle. Okay? It has a, a, has a genetic ability to develop into some amazing things. Personally, I've got a, two bad hips and a bad knee, okay? And my knee, I have no cartilage left. It's bone on bone, okay? It's, it's, it's sad. Sometimes I can hear it. Like, oh, it hurt. And I'm like, well, can you, like, give me some cartilage? And the guy's like, that doesn't happen. Your body, once you're done, you're done. It's like, somebody should have told me before I, you know, rack, rack my knee up. Uh, but they have this one little therapy that they're working on because they know that stem cells can become cartilage. And I haven't perfected it yet. They haven't figured it out yet. It has that potential. If you're young and you haven't started serving yet, and you're like, oh, I don't have much to contribute, you're like a stem cell, okay? You might not know what you can develop into. You can be life-saving to the church and to the world. You have it all in you. The potential, the very spiritual DNA of your Father in heaven is in you. But a stem cell has to get in there, has to interact, and has to begin to develop. You leave it in a test tube, It'll never become what it's called to become. In the body of Christ, we need those stem cells to step up. You might be, you know, physically young. You might be spiritually young. But there is such potential for you to become some person and some part of the, the body of Christ to do so much in the kingdom that we actually constantly are being told in our own heads, I'm not that good. I don't have that much potential. I'm not like that person. That is not God. That is not God's voice. 
Instead, he says, every single one of you are so important to the body of Christ. Okay, I'm going to speed it up. So, um, in the body of Christ, another way to describe it is you're in a team. You've got lots of different kinds of people, organs that do different functions, have different abilities, and that need each other because they're not self-sufficient. You'll see this. This is our way that we do our teamwork. This is our, we have, uh, we have six big teams made up of teams of teams, right? And we're one team and so on and so forth. Um, and so when, you do, when we go into the ministry affair today, you can find that there's going to be six booths of the different affinity group teams, and there's teams within those. That's how we work. But when we do team thinking and, and structuring, we realize we need diversity. We need different kinds of people, different kinds of processes, backgrounds that do different things. And I'm going to really speed it up because I had a whole bunch of First Corinthians happening here. Uh, but it's a description of the body that even though that's, you're one, one purpose, one body, you're many parts, many organs, and that you need the different kinds of backgrounds and organs in order to be a healthy body, okay? Um, but the point is, it's not so much that the body is unified, that's true, but you have to recognize it's diversified. That means if you're different and you don't feel like you fit in because you're not like everybody else, by that definition, you are important. The body needs you. Because nobody else can do that, okay? If it's we're in a team. We did a little study of our leaders, and we found out that a lot of our leaders have, you know, we did this thing called Five Voices. Great thing, by the way. We have a bunch of guardians. So these are the guys, actually, who, like, want to make sure that everything works and are kind of, like, always skeptical of change and so on and so forth. You need those people. And you have, we have these creatives who are always thinking about, oh, how do we make things better? How do we go forward? And so on and so forth. We have these nurturers that are, like, oh, making sure that everybody's okay and they're cared for and so on and so forth. But we're missing. We had no connectors. Okay, the connectors are the people who are like the ones who influence and schmooze and say, hey, come over here, let's talk, let's do this, let's do this together. And so our body's not functioning right because we're missing. We need this diversity. If you're a connector, we want you bad, right? It, just because you're like, I don't have all these people like me, by definition, we need you, okay? So that's one, diversity. Another part of the beauty of team is you need interdependence. That's what I'm describing here. You don't have to fill, fill everything. Not everybody's supposed to be a, you know, um, a, a, a Swiss Army knife. You can be something. You can be who you are. God made you. And let other people do their thing. You can lean on their strengths in team. If a foot says, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong, that's not to be true. Or if an ear says, I'm not an eye, so I don't belong, no. If we're all ears or all eyes and the body can't function right and we're not healthy. All right. I'm really speeding it up here, all right? So um, I've talked about servanthood. What it means, you serve and you up it to a point where you've, it's hard. You need to depend on God to serve. That's the way to doing it right. If it means taking the first step, first step, and you haven't been serving in the church, up it. There's going to be a discomfort level. That's okay. That means you're really learning. That means you're really growing. If you're already serving and you're like exhausted, I was preaching to exhausted people in the first service, right? Because they've been serving and serving and serving, and they're grumbling sometimes, and sometimes they're not. They just keep going. That's great. Keep at it, okay? Because we know this is what it means to be like Christ in our day and age. And the culture of New Vision is going to be a place where when you are exhausted, guess what? Somebody is going to pick up the pace because they're not doing it for you. They're doing it for God. That experience of serving together, I can tell you, is the most valuable part of community. 
You can hang out, you can eat together, you can talk, share life. The second you serve together and you see God work, nothing replaces that. I really long for that for us. You can get started by plugging in, go and visit all of the booths, talk to all the LTs and the different groups. Um, My last comment is, guess what? If you're here, I want to welcome you to our team, welcome you to the body of Christ. Let's pray.